Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week we've been playing a whole lot of games, and in some cases it feels like games we've been playing for half our lives, but they've suddenly become strangers. You know, sometimes it's a good thing, and sometimes it's not. And Rob, I know you have been ghost reconning since you were a kid, so tell me what you think of Wildlands. I feel like Wildlands, first, is so much better than I was expecting. Uh, yeah. Because I had read enough reviews, and also I'm cynical enough about um, open world, like theme park type games, mm-hmm. that I was really not interested in this at all. But I was, I've actually been really pleased at how well Wildlands still feels, to some degree, like an old school ghost recon game. Hmm. But then on the other hand, and and for the purposes of this this discussion to start, I'm setting aside the politics of the game because that's a different can of worms. What I'm talking about is the ghost recon that the ghost recon that I fell in love with as a boy (laughs) was a a young ghost. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Like sort of Casper aged. Um, Yeah. You know, it was it was a first-person shooter, but it wasn't really. It was an infantry sim, and secretly it was more of a stealth game than a shooter. Like, the original Ghost Recon games were not games where you and your team could just shoot it out uh, with, with the enemy. Because once they knew where you were, they zeroed in on you pretty quickly, and then you would start taking losses. And the original Ghost Recon campaign, you actually only had a finite number of troops, I think, for the entire campaign. Oh, wow. So once you'd blown through, like, a squad's worth of, of personnel, there were no more people to put in the team. Like, you started to go with depleted teams. So you really couldn't afford to be in these, like, raging gun battles in, uh, in, in Ghost Recon. Ghost Recon is really more about... Setting up, this is kind of a brutal way to put it, but it was more about setting up massacres. Sure. Like, like the job was to get yourselves in a perfect position so that once you cleared everyone to start firing, you would basically clear the board within like a second or two. Uh, which meant it's it was a weird shooter because it was actually often very anticlimactic. Like, you know, you, you'd give the word and suddenly you'd hear like, like, two seconds of intense firing and then everything was dead silence again uh which was which kind of eerie but but also to to good effect and then it did make those cases where things didn't go well and you were involved in a raging gun battle super dramatic and there aren't many games that operate that way anymore like a lot of that hardcore tactical shooter space has been kind of cleared out right like a lot of it went to arma and then a lot of those other games, the, the Tom Clancy games, the Rainbow Sixes, the, um, the the Ghost Recons, a lot of them went in a more, you know... arcade Yeah. Yeah. Like, not <laughs> yeah. not quite out to the Call of Duty end of things, but sure. but definitely not, like, Sims anymore. And with, yeah. with Wildlands, I was terrified that basically it was going to be Far Cry, oh, but... Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was, yep. There we go. Because all Ubisoft open world games kind of feel like Far Cry and Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's a template, and they just hit it again and again and again. With slightly different, you know, characters or, or 
sort of uh, tone, you know, Far Cry went in a pretty goofy direction. Assassin's Creed went in a pretty self-serious direction. And then somewhere in between that is everything else. You know, it's it's a little, a little weird. Um, this game, personally, is... God, I... It's something that I'm... I, I'm in this weird place where, yeah, the gameplay looks pretty interesting, but I, I'm, I don't think I can divorce it from the sort of shitty politics and the, you know, Tom Clancy's right wing. <laughs> like, I just want to, I just want there to be like, instead of the TM, I want there to be an RW, like, like after the the Tom Clancy, the little right. tiny like postscript, like right wing fantasy esports, like I, I don't know, it, uh, some something that kind of just puts it out there for for everybody because everything i've heard about this game rob rath actually wrote a really great piece uh at, at waypoint where we both work yay exciting um about the real life cartel war that's going mm -hmm. on in latin america and sort of like how this game looks pretty fucking ridiculous but all of these ridiculous and bad things are are really happening basically like the, yeah. the tanks are really there the helicopters are really there it's not actually like a joke um, well and actually that some of it is so crazy it doesn't even make it into the game. Oh or at God. least it doesn't That's, like yeah. like the the, the 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 reality is is so much stranger than fiction in some cases, yeah. right? Like yeah. somebody calling in a gunship strike in an urban area is like insanity. God. But but yeah. that's the anecdote he opens with in, in that story. Right. It's a it's a great piece. Yeah. And yeah, I think the politics aspect of it is it's not great <laughs> sure yeah no it's i don't know i i have this weird it's very strange to me that like sort of collectively yeah Everyone around this game has developed an intense interest in the politics and the means with which the drug war is waged. Sure. And do you think that that's post division? Do you think that's just sort of the world we live in post division looking like kind of a cool and fun game, but the politics really rubbing people, or at least some folks, kind of the wrong way? The whole like, well, everybody's a fucking criminal. Let's shoot him. You know that like attitude. <laughs> Maybe like I think so. This is weird compared to the division. I think this game's politics are better, but that's just because um, it's not quite this like nihilist hellscape sure. that the yeah. division makes for its sandbox, right? Like the yeah. divisions. The division's morality is 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 appalling. Yes. Uh, and you know, Alex Navarro and, and, and Austin did, did a great job like tag teaming the division, uh, when it came out last year on, on the beast cast, I think with this one, I think there's, there's a couple things going on. One is that it's sort of magically relocated to a country that doesn't have a lot of this going on. Like I, I'm, in Bolivia, right? Is the yeah, of this? Okay. Yeah. And so I think there is this weird like aspect of. Okay, you're taking a, like a real world situation, but you moved it to a more scenic playground, <laughs> and also, let's face it, probably a less important media market. Sure. Yeah. So you're you're kind of that's, taking that's that's what rubs me the wrong way in a lot of this for sure. But yeah, yeah, go on. yeah. No, so I, I, maybe maybe that's part of it is that 
if this game had sort of dealt honestly about what's happening in northern Mexico, yeah, um, and in and in some of the mountainous southern regions, I don't know. Maybe this game wouldn't be, you know, taking in the teeth uh, quite so hard. But instead, it's like it's doing that thing that a lot of media want to do, where they want like they want all the crazy. Um, for lack of a better term, all the crazy fucked up shit yeah. that's actually happening, but they don't want it to be too real, and they right. want it to they and they don't want to have to actually like say anything about it. So they transplant right. it to this fantasy situation. So it's very much like um, yeah, it's it's like somebody wants to make apocalypse now. But they don't want to discuss Vietnam at all. Oh, yeah, right? That's, yes. Which yes. is, I think, what a lot of military games want to do. For sure, yeah. It's like, no, I just want, look, I just want the helicopter scene. I just want the, the night battle at the bridge. <laughs> right. And, look, that's all I want. Can I just can I just have that? And the answer really should be no, you, you no, can't. You, can't. You, you, actually have to, you actually have to engage with this. And Ghost Recon's like, no, actually, actually, what, what if we just take this country... <laughs> and invent an over-the-top drug war there, and then populate it with cartoon caricatures. <laughs> and maybe that, that's that's the other thing too is that it's 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 trying to capture some aspect of the drug war. But my God, everyone from this cartel looks like they just stepped out of like. The Triple X series, oh or my God. maybe yeah. your lesser Fast, uh, Fast and the Furious movies. Sure, but they all have this weird like. It's just ridiculous, man. Like, yeah, and and this is this is the other thing too. There there is a there's a crappy Ubisoft aesthetic running through a lot of their games. Like, mm. boy, does this feel a lot like the crew in terms of the characterization. Oh God, which is not where sure. you want to be. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Like the, the crew is a game where the villain is literally called Shiv, and nobody sees him coming. Everyone's like, "How did boy? Who did who have thought that Shiv would like turn on us?" <laughs> His name is Shiv. <laughs> Darth Insanius is calling him up like on yeah. the weekend. He's like, "Hey, Shiv, you want to play some Ghost Recon with me?" Like that's yes. I yeah, got you. exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so. And then there's this other angle of because they moved it to Bolivia and the cartel is still Mexican. That's the thing is like, yeah, it is still a Mexican cartel that they moved to Bolivia. So now they're in the position of the occupiers. So now it's this like kind of sanitized conflict where the Bolivians are, they're just standing there. They're just there. Like they're in the middle of this, but they, they don't have any agency in it because now you're fighting a different invading force. And that's, that's another weird thing too, right? Is like one of the horrible things about the drug wars is that it always turns into really extended wars against um, heavily um, populations that are heavily descended from indigenous communities. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, that that's one aspect of it, and then frequently related um, is the fact that it's a war on poor agricultural communities. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And here, the bad guys aren't coming from any sort of, like, homegrown uh, economic context. 
they're transplants from Mexico. So by all means, go in there, kick their ass. You, you, know, you know what I mean? It's like. Right, right. Yeah. They've set it up in such a way that like, of course you feel good about doing this, even though, you know, in the in the actual context of what's going on, it's like a little more complicated than that, a little more fucked up than that. Um, so yeah, I we didn't, you know, we don't we don't need to go too too far down the rabbit hole. It's just one of those things where I I have a I have a difficult time now sort of divorcing a lot of this stuff. Um, which maybe it's it's good that I have a difficult time divorcing this stuff, of course. Um given the world we live in, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess the 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 thing I will say is for for all those for all that crappy context there's still kind of a fun military game here and sure. I feel like like it like I'm aware of it, right? Like I'm aware yeah. of all the yeah. creepy things that are happening in this game. But then but then at the same time Danielle, the other the other day, I was flying a helicopter at <laughs> night over over the Bolivian jungle. Yeah, and I don't know what was happening, but suddenly I saw like a group of flares go up over the jungle in yeah. the distance. As I'm flying closer, suddenly the the jungle began to like blossom with explosions. Like there was some sort of gunfight happening that didn't involve me. I was just flying over it, but okay. it was. It was beautiful in this weird, like, it's a beautiful game, right? Totally. Like, it has that weird, eerie beauty of a lot of, like, the spectacle of, of warfare, right? And that this game brings a lot of that out. Uh, in addition to that, like, there are some really cool, you, like, you are not a group of supermen, by and large. Uh, if you get overmatched... Things can go sideways very quickly. And uh, so a lot of the game turns into you and your team sort of like running like hell through tall grass and jungle while, uh, you know, bullets are whipping overhead. Like there's a lot of like drama and it's such a gorgeous setting sure. that there's there's a lot here that like I can still appreciate of even course. while I'm cringing at conversations like. God, one of your one of your guys attempts to be a little woke uh, during oh, during one of your God. drives, sure. and he's like, "Hey, let me ask you though, if you were born in a shithole like this, what oh. options do you have?" Oh. And so they all they all they all sort of comment on, "Well, yeah, I guess you don't really have any options in a place like this except starve or go become a drug lord." And the guy's like, yeah, just so we're all agreed, like, the starting line for these people is uh, is pretty far back. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so at least you're nodding in the direction. Somebody tried. Somebody on that writing team tried. I respect a try. Right. Uh, don't know if it... <laughs> don't know if a it hits shithole like this. Yeah, shithole like this. Little fucking racist. <laughs> Uh, well, and not just that, but also, and, and this is where I actually do think it reflects the rhetoric of our times. Yeah. Is that there is a lot of excuses being made for the excesses and, like, screw-ups of American foreign policy and, yeah. in some cases, like, naked imperialism on the grounds that 
the world is this hellscape, which it isn't, but the world's a hellscape. We're not perfect, but we're better than the alternatives. And yeah, but that worldview relies on creating this idea that these other countries have nothing going for themselves. So this fictional Bolivia, these poor benighted people have no hope whatsoever. Of course, they've all become drug dealers. So while it's unfortunate, we're not really doing anything bad here because the country's already a shithole. We're trying to clean it up. But in order to do that, we're going to have to kill a lot of people. But what okay. did they really have to lose? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, like, there are moments where you're like, where I'm like, I'm trying to enjoy, I'm trying to enjoy my sweet narco war jungle, like, warfare game. I'm trying to enjoy it, man. And then my buddy in the, in the, in the passenger seat is like, yo, I've been thinking about this. And I'm like, oh, God, no. Don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> think less. How about that? Like, yep. <laughs> Just go Saints Row. That's what I'm like. I'm at the point now where if you're if you're gonna I don't know I feel like the best meditations on violence come from either full you just you're thoughtful you say some things you know you say some smart things and you go all in with it or you go all in the other way and you make Saints Row like you just make fucking Saints Row like tonally speaking I feel like I'm I'm happiest on one extreme end or the other. Uh, of of this stuff of like violence solves all the problems because it's Saints Row or violence really doesn't solve anything. This is real bad, and we're just dealing with the reality of what's happening around us. It's it, it, things that sort of fall somewhere in between that are they're hurting me right now. They're, just, they're hurting my soul a little bit. My soul aches. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Aside from that, I think. To an extent, it's more of a faithful Ghost Recon game than I was expecting in terms of, again, like, I thought it was just going to be straight up open world, like, cartoon violence in some ways. It's it's not, like, you still have to be, there's there's kind of a fun stealth angle to a lot of it where you're, like, setting up your team and getting ready for that. You're sort of recreating those moments in the original Ghost Recon where, like, there's a lot of, like, prep and groundwork laying for eventual mayhem. Uh, like yeah. brief, brutal, like controlled violence, which is is cool in in a game like this. And there's moments where I'm really enjoying that game. Except then, it's also an Ubisoft open world game, <laughs> and so you'll be driving along on your way to ambush a convoy, and then the HUD is like, "Yo, there's a radio tower right here." Oh, I'm like, "What does that do?" Can you guess what it does, Danielle? Oh, it's gonna fill the you map got, you with got more two shit guesses. to do. Um, it's gonna, what it, it's gonna give you, you know, it's play, a race. It's a race. Stuff. Race stuff. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. You, yeah. So, it, like, I thought it was gonna be an instant, like, go to the radio tower, clear it, see more stuff. No, it fits the other archetype. Oh. You go to the radio tower, and you just have like. A limited amount of time to get to a nearby radio tower. And you have to learn the route. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing with this in a Ghost Recon game? Like, what on earth has happened here? That, like, this game now has a driving mini game in it. Yeah. Uh, it was really disappointing to see something like that. Like, because, you know, I kind of expected the bad politics going because I've read so much about this game. Uh, but also, point-to-point races are not really something I want to be doing uh, in a game like this. Uh, 
Um, the other thing I think, and this maybe does touch on the politics again a little bit, is that actually I think Wildlands is so close to being a great game. Like, yeah. if it had actually, like, sort of canned the idea that you're this, like, team of four badasses who are going to single-handedly liberate the country <laughs> and actually leaned into the setup that it sets up, which is that you're here to help um, a resistance within the countryside and sort of, like, basically turn the populace against the uh, the cartels and sort of, like, like basically stand up your allies to go win this fight alongside you. Like there is a really cool, basically if it had been like a shooter with like a strategic layer where you're dealing with the politics of this country and like trying to create like stable havens and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I think there's a fascinating game here. It would have been like a, a first person or, or a third person, uh jagged Alliance two, which is That's cool. a really cool yeah. game. Yeah. And you can almost see, like, where it could have gone that way. There's a lot of, like, managing of forces, like, tactically. um, But it just doesn't. And I think that's in in part because nobody here matters but the American badasses. (laughs) And that is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because it is such a beautiful looking game. And I think if... Some of the systems that were wasted on crappy, like, standard Ubisoft amusement park bullet points, Mm -hmm. if some of those had been put toward, like, creating ways to give you the sense that, like, you are liberating and winning over a country, and maybe even impose some choices, right? Like, do you want to help the Marxist uh, rebels up in the mountains, or do you want to, like, help democratic reformers? Something like that. That could also be cool. Yeah. But instead... It's all straight up like, all right, we're just going to do this, and we don't trust these commies anyway. They're just as bad as the, the cartels, basically. I'm like, oh, huh, 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 yeah. huh. I'm not sure about that, but okay. Uh, yeah. So it's like there's there's so much here that, that I think could have been a really, really cool game, and instead it's, it's, a, it's a pretty damn mediocre one uh, with, with some, some gorgeous trappings, but... It's also just a, a case of looking how drastically um, the ground has shifted under this franchise, right? That like, yeah. Ghost Recon can't be what it was, or or at least Ubisoft won't let it be what it was. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's it's really really interesting. I you know we were talking a little bit about this earlier and about sort of franchises that if they've been around long enough, they change, right? That that seems to be a thing that continues to happen. Over and over and over and over again in in sort of our our whole landscape. I like I haven't personally played a ton of Ghost Recon, but I, I know there's definitely a few sort of franchises that have been around forever and ever and ever, and they're all <laughs> they're all sort of shifting genre to genre as things go, right? Like there's I think there's a few good key examples here. Um, I know you, we were mentioning Dead Space is one that kind of is is like a very key example of something that was like it's a horror game and then it went action um resident evil did the same thing although now it's back to horror resident evil is a super complicated one it sure is but it's it's i think it's actually a really good example of this though because it's like 
it, it was straight up survival horror. It was, you know, among the first, not the first, but among the very first, the first wave of survival horror um, that got a little kind of more action-y as time went on. And then, you know, by four and five, it was pretty much action horror. And then at six, six was like kind of seen as a disaster, I think, uh, for, for the franchise. And then seven, which just came out in January, was... Uh, very, very highly critically acclaimed and went back to horror, almost pure horror, where you're, you know, fairly defenseless against uh, terrible things that are happening around you. You don't have like an infinite gun or you're not like a muscle, you know, roidal, you know, like massive, massive dude with like muscles on muscles anymore who can just shoot the face off zombies. It's it's more like, you know, you got to hide. You got to watch out for those monsters again, which is, it's fascinating to see a franchise make an evolution, then kind of go back to not not the original uh, gameplay type, but like the original vision, you know, of being like a more pure horror experience. And I don't know, I, I find that really interesting. I find it I find it interesting when a series finds its way again, especially when it, you know, maybe went off the beaten path and then kind of was like, no, you know what? Actually, things were really good when things were actually scary. Well, <laughs> so let's do that again. But even there, like it, it, it gets its way back onto the beaten path. By changing genres, like yeah, exactly. Resident Evil Seven, I think is it, it's first person, right? Like it's yeah. like it's yeah, gone. It so that was a series that I think uh, I didn't play six, uh, but I think I six didn't was, either. Like, really, I've, I've played games. like bits and pieces of the um, not even just six itself, but of the sort of side story games that were like six. Like you know, it's third person shooter. It's very you know very yeah. actiony with with a little bit of puzzles and some monsters, basically. So. Same game type, but uh, maybe a little better than six. I haven't really played six. I just know its reputation, sort of. Uh, so take that with a grain of salt, I guess. But I do think it's really interesting that, in some ways, this is the most like proper Resident Evil evil feeling game in years. Yes. Yeah. It's and great. it's the one that, <laughs> in terms of mechanics, in terms of like design, is arguably the least Resident Evil of any of them. Yeah. Because it's like. Eh, how about what if instead it were first person? Like they they finally <laughs> yeah. they finally butchered that sacred cow, yeah. um, and sort of Made rediscovered a delicious steak. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting example. Like, but Resident Evil is a fascinating example from the start because, like, I remember even I felt like there was even a tension between one and two. Like, yeah. Resident Evil 1 was such a resource-starved game. Like, you were, like, it was every shot counted. Bullets yeah. were precious. Um, you were really terrified for a lot of that game because you just, you actually couldn't do much of anything. You had nothing, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Resident Evil 2, which superficially looks a lot like Resident Evil 1, I think basically starts from the position of, okay, but what if you just have, like, tons of guns and ammunition? What if you're kind of an awesome cop in your actual station. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Starting out anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So like you're just going to like mow down like a million zombies. That sound good to you? Cool. <laughs> and it, it yeah. sort of feels like the it was always sort of um, seesawing between like is it horror or, or is it action? Um, and maybe four, you know, seems like the, the perfect balance that that was that was struck for a long time. Right. Yeah. That, that was the. Yeah. That was sort of the um, the the best melding 
of, of Resident Evil's two identities into one yeah. game. And then almost as soon as they hit that formula, it, it, it sort of went away for, for Resident Evil 5. Yeah, did you play much of 5? Just out of curiosity. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay, yeah. I, 5's an interesting one for me, because I actually really enjoyed it quite a bit, but I also played it co-op. Uh, and that was definitely, like, the way to play that game. It was actually, like, a really fun, weird buddy cop thing. Also, probably, yeah, had some weird racial tension. Yeah, and sure. see, this is, and In so there. this yeah. is, after my apologia for Ghost Recon, yep. this is the one where I'm like, I'm pretty, tur- I was pretty turned off by... For sure. A lot of that, so I, I didn't end up taking a, taking a shot at it. But, yeah, I imagine, it, like, but co-op, it was cool. Co-op, it was really fun. Uh, but yeah, like, <laughs> going back to not being able to divorce this stuff, it it sure had some charged imagery uh, in there. And they they really did, like, this is one of those, they, it sure was 2005 or whatever year it came out. Around then, 2006, maybe, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, <laughs> this sure was the way to solve this problem back then, which was giving you a black sidekick. Like, it was very, like, okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> mm, mm. Okay, so you had a black friend. You sure did, uh, and so co-op. It was it was white dude McHero face and and a and a black lady who was also like a super badass. Like she was she was a cool character. I'll give her credit. She was a cool character, but like, whew, that that was a way of of solving quote unquote giant scare quotes. That one, I guess. Yeah. Oh my god. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I didn't play much Dead Space, but that always comes to to bear when we're, whenever you're talking about sort of genre hopping within a uh within a sort of long at least long-ish running franchise because i know that one i played a bit of the first one um and that was that was like always a pretty actiony horror game but it was always pretty rooted in horror you know for sure yeah. there's a lot of being scared even if you were you weren't as underpowered as you were in the sort of traditional Resident Evil games by by any means. You you pretty much always had something to fight back with, but the staging, the lighting, the sort of um just the scenarios you were in were very they were actually pretty scary. I remember actually being a little freaked out by some of the stuff uh in that game, at least of what I played of it. So it it uh it felt like horror. And then I remember the third one being very like bro action with aliens like it, it it went it did like a full transition <laughs> in that one and that one uh, the third one was not as well regarded if i remember correctly as well no and that's it's it's another interesting series there i feel like the series didn't end up living long enough to really experiment a lot with genre i feel like dead space 3 ends up just do you remember there, it, like I feel like it was part of that entire era where E three had like not E three where EA had convinced yeah. itself that all anyone wanted to do was play co op, like yes. that every game needed to be co op. Yeah, and so Dead Space three became uh, designed sort of from the ground up uh, to to be a, a co-op experience, but there was no way to do that without sort of betraying the work of, of the first two games. And I think you're absolutely right. Like Dead Space One is it always posed a problem for me because it is it is a scary freaking game. It is yeah, it's, it's a really creepy. effective horror game. Yeah. But do you have this thing because I definitely do where I'm like a game can't be true horror if there's too much recourse to violence. 
Yeah. Do you, do you have that? Like, if there's too much, like, putting the beat down? I think it'd be possible down? to do it, but I don't know if it's ever been done yet, to be honest. Like, I, because I, I do agree with that. I think it's, it's usually much scarier if you are mechanically, the thing you are doing, the thing you are playing, hiding is the best choice is always scarier to me. Uh, that's why Alien Isolation was so fucking good, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, I, it's it's probably possible to to give you a fighting chance, and also be terrifying. But but I don't know if it's been done yet. I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, so I didn't play Dead Space Two, and I've heard. Um, I guess I've heard from some people it's even a more effective horror game. Sure. Um, so I, I like, like I kind of do want to to go back and and give it a shot, but yeah, like Dead Space One, when the monsters are scary, but you can always dismember the shit out of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like after a certain point, like you have to be the hunted. Yeah, and if if you can always, if you can always just you know turn around and kick the monster's ass. Um, you've got a bit of a problem, but then Dead Space Three comes out, and they're like, "Eh, yeah. What if you just what if you just squat up with your bros and really <laughs> kick their asses?" Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's mm. in that case, it's not like in that case, don't even market it as a horror game anymore. At that point, it's like, ah, oh, you know what? Have fun shooting aliens. Like that's <laughs> have fun shooting aliens is very different from be scared by aliens and it's fun to be scared sometimes <laughs> it's, a, it's a very like this is a different discussion but the kind of fun that you're going to be having i do wish that was better communicated sometimes because uh, there's a lot of different kinds of fun uh for sure there's a lot of different kinds of ways to have fun playing a video game and it would be nice to hone in on that even even before you go in uh the one the one thing i i do Wanna mention because of course I'm playing it endlessly right now, uh, and it and it kind of fits this. Although it's it's weird. Nintendo always does things in a slightly weird way when they kind of genre hop. They don't really genre hop. They just kind of take things they like <laughs> and sort of shape it in a Nintendo way. And that's the Zelda series, which is God. It, <laughs> there are certain Zelda games that are almost they're almost genre hopping. But they're not exactly uh, fully genre hopping. Okay, so we've got our two D Zeldas and we've got our three D Zeldas. Right. Those You're feel not, like by, by the way, like yeah, explain as if to a child. Okay, Zelda games. <laughs> um, I'm playing Breath of the Wild right now, and it is definitely an open world game. Open world in the same way that The Witcher is open world, or you know, other kinds of open world games. But it's doing a lot of things very, very differently, and it's also doing things that still make sense within the structure of a Zelda game, which is you're this little guy, Link, and you explore the world, and you get items, and you get more powerful by getting special items that allow you to go kind of further and do different things in the world. There are dungeons. Uh, that are, you know, sort of half combat, half puzzles. You know, you're fighting monsters and you're also sort of solving environmental puzzles to solve that dungeon, beat a boss, and get further in the world. That's kind of the general structure of the games, uh, 2D or 3D. So Breath of the Wild 
is that but open world and gives you a lot more freedom to do a lot of things and it's a lot more uh, systems based in the way that we talk about with a Far Cry 2 or a um, well Far Cry 2 really is <laughs> the most idle thumbs example I can go to for that huh but I alright I know who I'm talking to I guess um, in the way that you know there are a lot of different kinds of interactions that happen in the world. Some are unexpected. There's a lot of weird physics stuff you can do. You have certain powers that will, you have things like bombs, you have things like a magnetic ability, you have a stasis ability, uh, and you can really solve a lot of the puzzles in many different ways. You can solve combat in a lot of different ways by using complete like myriad of abilities, wacky wild stuff that you can do. Uh, and the game will sort of respect that and actually give you something uh give you something back that's surprising sometimes but also makes sense within the rules of the world yeah the, so the, the video the perfect keep... example oh yeah go ahead go ahead no hang on you might actually be telling me i might actually be okay. uh like bogarting the perfect example what's your perfect example oh well it, this is an austin example but he was fighting these two you know like lizard monsters and the lizard monsters had a fire arrow which they shot at him and the grass he and the grass around him uh went on fire and you have basically a paraglider which is what lets you kind of go from mountain to mountain in this world or mountain to valley you know it, it basically allows you to travel really far distances whenever you're from a high point and go down well that the heat from the fire created like an updraft and he didn't even know he could do what? this but he, he sort of accidentally hit the button to jump and use your paraglider and it elevated him like a hundred feet into the air and he was able to shoot the lizard guys from there. Holy shit. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that happens. He didn't even expect that to happen because it's not it's not necessarily told to you that like, oh, by the way, the heat from a fire will create an updraft and you can make use of that. But no, it just it just happened well, I that mean, way. The idea of heat doesn't exist in most games. Like, exactly. That, that part that part of the physics equation isn't modeled. Right, right. But it is here, and you wouldn't know it unless you got into a weird situation like that. That right? is nuts. It's amazing. This game is, honestly, Rob, this game is giving Witcher 3 a run for its money mm. in the open world category. Mm. Not for the same reasons. Yeah. Let's be clear. Not for the same reasons. It's it's not it's not the same kind of game narratively by a long shot. Like The world and the characters of The Witcher 3 are, are still a lot more interesting from a narrative point of view. Like in terms of like, I want to hang out with these people and learn more about them. Um, but in terms of like those systems and in terms of like what surprises I'll sort of find around the corner, this is this is giving it a run for its money. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, the point I was trying to make in terms of, of this being different and kind of genre hopping is that Zelda games had always been. Not exactly linear. You know, the first game, you could kind of go anywhere at first, but you you just didn't have, you know, the right items. You know, you couldn't get here because you didn't have this special arrow that would allow you to yeah. get here. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and this is subverting a lot of that. Now, there's still a tiny bit of that gating. Like, there are certainly places that are hard to get to without, you know, a proper amount of stamina or, you know, particular clothes that will keep you warm in the in the cold, that kind of thing. But uh, for the most part, this is this is really breaking open a lot of that structure and allowing you to seriously go at it at your own pace instead of, yeah, you can kind of go anywhere in the overworld, but it's not much for you to do there until you get X, Y, or Z. Here, it's like, fucking go nuts. Enjoy. Mm. Like, go wherever you want. Something fun will happen no matter where you are, and you're going to get the things you need kind of along the way. Uh, so it's 
it's doing things, it's genre jumping, but it's also genre defining, I think. It's it's defining a new way of doing an open world game, uh, really without a lot of the gating that you experience in an open world game. Does it still manage to deliver like a satisfying narrative arcs in that kind of framework? Because my, my issue with a lot of games where you can kind of go anywhere, do anything in any kind of order, sometimes makes it feel as if um, it's all a little disjointed or like uh, the story is just window dressing on a bunch of like uh, systematized adventures. Sure, sure. I think it's doing a pretty good job with this. I mean, I never play Zelda games for the story, personally. I play them for for fun puzzles, you know? Like, they're fine. I don't think they're, like, shitty or anything. It's just, you know, tip tends to be, you're a cool guy. Maybe you're a wolf this time. Maybe you're, you know... I think Wind Waker actually had a pretty pretty cool Zelda story. It was more about, oh, the, the world ended, but, you know, life went on after that, and there's some cool things going on, and now there's a beautiful ocean. Um, this one is much, much better told, I think. And the, the fractured nature of the story makes sense because you're actually sort of collecting memories around the world and you'll get these memories of sort of what had happened before. And the characterization of Zelda is actually maybe a thousand times better than every other Zelda game. She's always been kind of the princess and she's real smart, but whatever, you always had to rescue her here. She's kind of the real hero of the story, which is cool. Is she taking part in the story? Because, like, well, and look, I'm basically like going from like the two or three Zelda games I played where Zelda is largely an off camera presence. Sure. Uh, sure. So I don't know what the, how that has evolved, but I'm curious how she's taking part in the story. Well, without, uh, without going too far into it, because it won't make much sense without playing it. Okay. You wake up. This is the beginning of the game. You wake up after sleeping for a hundred years. You've been in a coma or some weird sci-fi. God, that sounds hundred years. Oh yeah, my right. God. Yup. Zelda has been fighting Ganon for a hundred years in some way. It's not really explained. I'm, I'm, I'm probably forty hours in, and I've only done like half of the story because I'm having so much fun fucking around. But I'm doing story stuff now. I'm getting, I'm getting there. And as you learn, you kind of fucked up. Like, there was a whole plan to beat Ganon 100 years ago, and you fucked up, and you ended up in this 100-year coma, and Zelda, the real hero, is still fighting him all this time. Uh, so, yes, uh, it's somewhat off-camera because you're only hearing about it in bits and pieces. You go around the world, you're sort of getting your memories mm-hmm. back. That's the framing. Like, oh, okay, this is where Zelda was way smarter than me. This is where Zelda berated me for being shitty with my sword. You know, like things like that. Okay. Um, so, I... I it's all going to kind of depend oh, how it yeah. wraps up, whether or not she, you know, how it, how she really kind of comes out of this. Uh, but I'm finding it to be way more satisfying than most Zelda stories that like rely on a lot of just kind of mystical bullshit of like, well, she was the pr- she's the most wise woman in the world, but she still gets fucking kidnapped every time. Like, <laughs> uh, to well, actually, she's she's been fighting in some weird metaphysical way. She's been fighting this whole time. She's not just like sitting there twiddling her thumbs, waiting for me to show up, basically. So, so I'm, I, I'm into it, Rob. I I think I genuinely think you would enjoy this game. I, really I mean, look, the the only reason I'm not playing it is because I just need to like free up funds to get a Switch. Um, Do you have a Wii U? No. Oh, all right. No, well, I've, I I've been playing it on the Wii U. I've barely touched the Switch version, and I'm having the time of my damn life with my Wii U. So I'm just saying, that's so, an affordable b- option. Before I make a call, I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to sit down and have a real serious conversation <laughs> about where I can play back catalog Nintendo games now. Like, is Wii U still going to be the best place to go for that? 
Is sure. that all going to make it onto the Switch? I don't know, but it's I'm it's a conversation still, we need to yeah. uh, we need to like we need to look deeply into the into the eyes of that situation yeah. and and reach a verdict. Um, yeah, that sounds fair. Probably yeah. I'm just going to get a Switch though because I think at this point you're probably an idiot if you get a Wii U, regardless yeah. of what the virtual console situation is. That's that's the whole that's the whole thing. It's just that there's <sighs> it's you dumb. You know me, you know me, and how much I love the Wii U and how many great Wii U I do, there were. I do. So. I'm I'm hoping there's w- one day it might just be super affordable. You can get those games for cheap, and they're real good. So we'll see. We'll see. Fingers crossed. But yeah. regarding Zelda, though, I think this is an interesting... So some series are evolving constantly in reaction to the times. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know... Resident Evil uh, is is one. Uh, Far Cry sort of kept reinventing itself almost from yeah. from day one. Uh, was Zelda doing that? Like, does 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 Breath of yes. the Wild feel like a huge departure, or does it feel like it fits in a framework of like changing genres and approaches? I think the Zelda games uh, they sort of vary from like ten percent departure. They're always evolving at least a little bit. Um, I think, you know, there are some major, major departures. Majora's Mask is a good one for it totally revamped the structure of how you approach everything because it had the repeating three-day cycle. It's my co-favorite Zelda, by the way, with Wind Waker. Wind Waker does do some interesting things. It actually has some stealth mechanics. It completely revamped the combat for the 3D game. So that one's like a one's like a 30% departure, <laughs> let's call it. Um and then Skyward Sword had some interesting stuff with flying and and sort of the way you approach the world. It, Skyward Sword feels in a lot of ways like a prototype for Breath of the Wild. Like it it did have a much more open world. It just wasn't completely seamless. I, I mean, it was far from seamless, actually, um, how, how that actually kind of worked out. Uh, so that one was like, let's call that one a 10% departure from the sort of usual formula. They all evolve a little bit. Uh, but this one feels like a a full a, a real departure. Let's let's call it. I'm not I'm not going to put a percentage on it because it's right. just a very different kind of game. It keeps some of the trappings. It keeps some of the stuff that really does work, like the puzzles and the combat and a lot of the sort of you know the feeling of wonder, the feeling of adventure. That is kind of a, a, very much the point of playing these games. I I play them for that. I play them to like escape into a really really pretty world. Uh, where I'm going to get to solve a whole bunch of puzzles and kick a whole bunch of monsters' asses, and that's kind of always fun when it's paced correctly, which is what the games, um, at their best, do very, very, very well. Like, a great Zelda dungeon is like, oh, count me in. I know I'm going to have, like, two hours of a really good time. Maybe not two hours. It depends on the dungeon, right? But, like, you know in a good dungeon, like, I'm going to fight some stuff. I'm going to solve some puzzles. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to see some cool things. Like, you, you know you're in for a good time that's paced well. Um, and this does that just within the context of you can really go anywhere and much more importantly, not just can you go everywhere, you're going to find something actually fun and interesting to do anywhere you go, which is the other part of that equation that is crucial. And I think a lot of open world games fail on they, they, they sure do make, you know, in a, in a Far Cry game or, or whatever, uh, Ubisoft open world game. There sure are beautiful places. There's a really interesting world, but whether or not there are always interesting things to do is the, you know, that's the character. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what ends up really being a drag on the Batman series 
is yeah. that like yeah. Arkham Asylum worked because they were like ripping off uh, Zelda and Beyond Good, Good and Evil pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, open world, but what do you do in it? Well, you kind of go around and beat the shit out of dudes. <laughs> right, you like, do okay, the same you, thing. You spread yeah. that across 100 acres. Like, it, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what yeah, good does that do anyone? For sure. Something I want to talk about, like, in terms of genre shifts, um, and maybe maybe this tide is starting to recede a little bit, but, like, there are so many games now with survival elements. Um, and I know one game that you've been playing sort of struck me as a weird, uh, a weird place to find uh, survival <laughs> elements, which is, sure. which is Kona. Yes. Uh, which is a, an adventure, like, a... <laughs> A suspense adventure game set in like rural, uh, like northern Quebec. northern Quebec, Canada, yeah. um, and I played it when it was er- in early access, and I had some issues, but sure, I, sure. I also really enjoyed like how evocative uh, it, it was, and I'm a sucker for Arctic terrifying in- environments. But <laughs> the the weird thing was, there also like your character could still like freeze to death. And yep. stuff, even though <laughs> there was no place you get in any trouble with that because you're you're in a town. Like, it's not hard to you just go inside, get warm. Uh, so I, I was kind of inter- interested to see that this is a game that, like, leans so heavily on just, like, survival elements where it didn't really feel like a survival game. Uh, and now you're, you've been playing the, the final version a little bit, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I really like this game. I'll say that to start off. Uh, and to me, it feels like very much an evolution. It's something I talked about like last summer, I think, about quote unquote walking simulators. You know, very, very story based, first person games that are that really rely on story more than anything, um, and and scenery and sort of picking up clues in the scenery, that kind of thing. Uh, but that have a lot more sort of mechanical depth than your average quote unquote working, walking simulator, which is, you know, you're just only sort of walking around looking at things, maybe solving some light puzzles. So, yeah, this one has all this sort of survival stuff. You have to stay warm. You have to stay healthy. And you, and, and you have to keep your brain in good shape, which is a really interesting sort of. Uh, OK, um, are we talking about like like you, you need have a to- brain meter? Okay. In this game. Is this like I, Cthulhu-esque sanity thing? Or are we talking about like you're sharp or you're not? I, I think it's you're sharp or you're not. Wow. Um, because you're going to, yeah, you're going to like notice things more, I believe, if you're if you're totally sharp. Now, I've, I've, uh, I've probably played about 90 minutes of it the other day, the first 90 minutes. And it's just a really, more than anything, it's just a really interesting setting and story. And you are this person, you're a private eye named Carl. And you talk to yourself a lot, or there's there's sort of a voice in your head that is, Carl did this, and Carl oh, thought it, that. Is it still that really corny narrator? Yes, oh, with the best man. Canadian accent. I love it. Oh, it's you so love good. it. I love it. Oh my god, see Danielle, that was the one well, thing it's, it's I was like, cheesy this is- fiction. Like that's the thing. You're a dime store detective. Like you're a private eye. It's very. It just leans into the cheese in just a very different setting mm. than you usually have that kind of cheese. If that it was a sense. little too goopy for me, though. Yeah, it was All like right. well, okay. it was like that that's second fair. order of Saganaki. You know what I mean? Or it's like, <laughs> oh boy, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this. I I really like it. Um. It fits for me. You know, it's also the okay. 70s in, in northern yeah. Quebec. Everything's frozen. Except since Everything's... northern Quebec time stopped in the 50s because the <laughs> 70s. 
I mean, you're you're ostensibly solving a murder. Um, you know, you're you, well. At first, you're kind of driving up, and there's also driving mechanics in this game, which is is kind of cool. Um, I actually kind of like that. It reminds me a little of like how glitch hikers worked. It's like, you know, you're just driving around instead of walking around. You're driving around uh, for portions of this, and the story is going, and you're seeing the scenery, and it, and it really works at least as a as a sort of vehicle for getting you into that world and making you feel like, yes, I'm driving in this snowy you know, small town. I, I'm seeing all this stuff. This makes sense. This is what I would see if I was actually here. If I were Carl, I would see this. You know, it's very, it, it put me there effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually really like the puzzles in it. They're they're fun and make sense in a way that a lot of these, these kind of like, you know, uh, very story-based games from smaller teams don't always. They're either kind of like too easy. It's just like clearly there just to make you do something yeah. other than just walk around. Pull the or, lever. Pull the lever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Of, yeah. And it's like, all right. <laughs> you didn't even need that. Okay, guys. Uh, no, they make sense. You know, one of the first puzzles uh, in the in the sort of gas station area is figuring out how to get the electricity on. So yes, you do have to obviously go to the generator and turn it on and do all this stuff. But there's also like, oh, a way that a thing that would make sense would be you have to use your flashlight to see the, you know, the little chart that says, okay, if, if the power is flowing this way, it goes to the garage or the power yeah. is flowing this way, it goes to the store. It actually makes full sense. Like this is actually a thing that would happen in the real world that you'd need to make sense of. So I really appreciate that about it, um, at least thus far. Uh, to get your car out of a, uh, you know, you've gotten into an accident and you need to sort of pull your car out, you need to use, uh, you know, chains. Like, it's it's a thing that makes sense in the world, right? These are these are things that make sense, so I appreciated that. Um, honestly, the, the survival stuff isn't too hard. It's just kind of something you need to keep in mind. Like, you're kind of fucking up. At least early in the game, you're kind of fucking up if you're just standing out in the snow for an hour, which also makes sense in the real world yeah. if it's sub-zero. Like, you would die <laughs> eventually, you know? So it just makes sense. Go warm by a, go get warm by a fire if you need to be outside for a while, and then go do what you got to do, and then get warm again. It's I appreciate when these kinds of games have those mechanics that, frankly, put you in the world more, that actually sort of embody you in the world. Uh, and make you think about, okay, if I was really this person in this situation, what would I actually do? I would warm my hands up before I went, you know, and tried to fiddle with something in a, you know, in an, in a car's glove box or whatever. Mm. So you, you like these elements because they allow you to inhabit the character in the world yes. a little more. I don't like them if they're A, bullshit, or B, more frustrating than they're worth, uh, which I don't think is at all the case here. Uh, so like given that, like that's my that's my warning all the time. Like if if it's just there to be there, don't fucking bother. And if it's gonna annoy the shit out of me and keep me from progressing, don't even bother. But like if you got a good idea for how to implement this stuff, please do because that that adds to the experience, at least for me. Interesting. Yeah, see for me I was just like, I don't know what this is doing here. Cause yeah. like it's all in this small little town. And so there is no like the elements aren't really a threat because you're always like at most fifty yards from shelter. You could be inside, um, yeah, yeah, and so it, it seemed a little weird. Now I'm 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 wondering, and we'll, we'll probably talk about this a bit more as as you play it more, and and I want to give it a shot too. Yeah. Uh, maybe it opens up a little bit, you know, like I kind of hope it does. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, otherwise, I, I don't know what that driving mechanic is doing there either, because <laughs> right. like you literally drive up and down like the main drag a couple times. <laughs> uh, that's it. Yeah, 
Well, like I said, I'm still pretty early, uh, so I liked it for what it did there. If it kind of disappears, fine. You know, whatever. Have you encountered the spirits? <laughs> I definitely found a weird thing that I had to take a picture of, if that's a spirit. Um, well, in, I'm not sure. and I don't know if, I, like, again, I'm, I'm curious if it made it into the final game or if that's still the setup for the overall game. <laughs> in the original game, you come to like a freaking ice wall. Oh, yeah. And... I don't know what it is. You step near it and you kind of like trip out and then you're in the spirit world and there's a bunch of like neon colored spirits hanging oh, out yeah. by this wall. Okay. I have not, but that okay. sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. It's amazing is a word. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like, like literally we're talking like, you know, the, the pink of like, a girl's trapper keeper in a 90s elementary school. Oh, like a Lisa Frank, like, full yeah. on. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's that color oh, yeah. of, like, pink spirit that you're like, oh, man, like, what are the spirits trying to tell me? And I'm <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. It looks like this spirit wants to tell you to buy the, uh, buy, buy like, the neon, the, the, the neon colored glue uh, and, and remember to cover your book. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, oh, God. So it was really weird, but but then there were also things where you'd go and like you'd sort of find these little ghost stories uh, within the town, along with some really corny uh, models of frozen people. Oh, perfect! Um, it's some it's some good stuff. But I I love that shit. Like I seriously love that kind of stuff. I yeah, I was so I was so torn because like I did love exploring the world and I loved the period details and how simple and rustic this community felt like. This is not a community where luxuries are very common, right? Like, yeah. like life centers on sources of heat, uh, simple jobs to sort of support the local, like, raw materials industries. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, it's like creature comforts are, are not like, there's not a ton of them uh, up right. here. And so I loved, I, I loved those details. But then there's also a point, <laughs> there's a point where you find a freaking eye patch. And and the narrator comes in. The narrator comes in to tell you about this moment of finding the eye patch, and he's like, "Ah, the eye patch, the preferred, the preferred, uh, what is it? Um, the the accoutrement. The, yeah, accoutrement. I think I think it's the preferred accoutrement for the one-eyed or those with other eye conditions." Oh and I was like, what the God. hell? What the hell, Carl? Carl? Carl is such a goddamn dork. I love it. Oh my god. Yeah, so like, I was like, ah, oh, this doesn't seem like if this is if this is how it's written, we might be in some deep trouble here. Sure. Um, sure. I yeah. I I really want to play more. I'm so I had so much fun with those yeah. first 90 minutes. And of course, I was streaming it, which is always like it's kind of the way I like to play a lot of these games. Like, it just kind of like hamming it up yep. with, you know, with Carl, with with my cheesy friend Carl, you know. Um, so I, yeah, I, yeah. This this damn thing has my name on it, so it's is every radio <laughs> playing expected. that that one song? By the way, what the one? Oh, the song. Every the radio, real good. <laughs> every radio plays the same like French Canadian folk song. Yep. And like within about 20 minutes of playing that game, I was like, okay, if I were these people, I'd have killed myself too. Yep. Like, no wonder they <laughs> all like, disappeared. Like, this is their radio. I would have left, not because it's real cold, not because it's, you know, a small town and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big town girl. 
It's because of that radio. I, I can't hear this loop on. again. I just can't. I just can't do it, Dad. I gotta go. You know. Oh God. I uh on that note, on that note of the the amazing radio playing one song. I think it's a good idea to jump into our weekend projects because we didn't really actually get much correspondence this week. But, hey, that's OK. You can write us uh, up in our frozen north. Well, not Rob. He's in he's in the beautiful, gorgeous world of L.A. still. But here in the frozen north of New York, uh, you can you can always write us. And uh, and so, Rob, other than other than, uh, you know, ghost reconning it, what uh, what's been setting your world on fire lately? Yeah, so I've uh, just started reading uh, The Campaigns of Napoleon by mm. David Chandler. Very nice. Which is a ridiculous book. Um, <laughs> I think it's like 1,200 pages. Holy shit. Uh, but it's really way more approachable than that because like 100 of that is indexes and indices okay. and appendices. Like So really, like 1,100 pages. But All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I just started reach, reading it. Um, I've been I, I was doing some research on the hundred days, uh, you know, which is the the Waterloo campaign, and now I've sort of gone back to the start. But it's a really interesting biography because it first it it very ostentatiously attempts to just confine itself to the military science of Napoleon. But it can't do that because there's too much context. Like, the context for the military campaigns is way too tied up in the politics of his empire and what he was doing. And so the book starts out with a very, like, pure, purely focused, like, look, we're going to be talking about the military campaigns. That's what we're interested in. <laughs> that other stuff doesn't matter as much. But it all matters. And that's, yeah, and that's what's funny is it all, yeah, keeps, yeah. it all keeps working its way back in uh, to the story. But you know it's 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 insanely detailed, and it does a great job of like covering things that a lot of other histories uh, don't do a great job of really bringing to life. Like just the the sheer complexity of managing large armies uh, during this period. Because mm-hmm. the crazy thing about Napoleonics is that the technology hadn't improved really from. You know, fourteen hundred to eighteen eighteen hundred. Sure. Like, yeah, there was still no better technology for administering uh, an empire or or managing managing troops. So, and yet the armies are all massive now. Uh, like Napoleon is commanding hundreds yeah. of thousands of men, uh, which is way more than than any commander in in history was really able to field. And the reason he's able to do that is because he's invented uh, he and his um, you know aides. And his uh, long ter- longtime colleagues like uh, Berthier, uh, which was like the the staff genius who, who behind Napoleon who made it all work, um, <laughs> were just insanely organized. Yeah. Like, but what what you don't realize is it's one thing to say okay they did a lot of staff work and things like that, but what you don't really realize is just how detailed and into the nitty gritty they needed to get. Like every single regiment. And we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of these things have to have exact like marching orders. Here's where you're going to hit this crossroads. You're going to pause there and rest for 30 minutes while that crossroads is utilized by another regiment. And they're going to go through and then you have to go. And if that doesn't happen, like clockwork, you're going to have a traffic jam and everything goes to hell. Wow. So it has to happen like clockwork. 
And so you you see how a lot of things end up hinging on the fact that like messengers get lost, um, mm. orders are unclear. Uh, there's <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of this history turns on clarity of written instruction. Uh, it's it's interesting to see like this is an era, uh, and actually I guess a lot of military history uh, in the modern worlds work this way. It's an era where good, effective communicators, in many cases, are effective commanders. Sure. And people who are vague or inattentive to detail or blind to some of the mixed messages that might be in their text end up screwing everything up. Oh, man. So it's fascinating from that standpoint. But the, the thing that I find really compelling about it and, and the reason it's, it's, it's kind of my weekend project here is that it is also a biography that is obsessed with the moment a decline begins. Mm. Like, it is a biography that's trying to pin down, like, when is this guy at his best? What does his best look like? And when does it start to slip away from him? Because even though he didn't, like, even though it didn't really hit the wall until 1814, 1815, Really, he's just not as sharp. Like, it's starting to get away from him a lot sooner uh, than that. He starts making mistakes that he didn't used to make. And it becomes this investigation of, depending how you want to look at it, he's a heroic or anti-heroic figure. And the biography is actually pretty even-handed. The truth <laughs> is that he's both. Yeah. Um, he's, at times, a monster. Uh, at times, an, an enlightened ruler. Um, at times, a complete asshole. Uh, but, but it's also trying to get at why does someone with all these abilities and all this insight, why does all, why does it all start to rot? Why does it, why doesn't he see what, what his, with the mistakes? Why doesn't he see it happening? Why doesn't he feel it happening? Or does he? That's the, that's the other part of it is that even Napoleon at a certain point begins to, begins to sense that things aren't going as well as they used to, and that maybe even he's not who he used to be. And it starts driving bigger risks and bigger mistakes, right? It's that, it's that, it's that thing that a lot of people do, which is that, you know, no, I can get it all back. You know, they double I just, down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, I'm, I'm still in my prime. I can still do this. Like, I made mistakes, but this time it's going to be different. And, you know, that's when things really enter a death spiral, but... It's this fascinating portrait of like, you know, what what creates sort of a meteoric rise, what fuels it. And then in sort of the tragic sense, how does that all become poisonous? Right? Like because it is it is a very Ultima type situation, right? Like the first half <laughs> the first half of Napoleon's story is like these heroic virtues. But somewhere around the middle, they start to turn into tragic vices. Uh, you know, they're taken just a little too far. They become too big. Uh, the stage they're operating on is too big. And in their, like, gigantism, they become grotesque. And they, 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 they turn into, into something different. And other people begin to notice it. That's the other, the other part of it, is that a lot of what made Napoleon unstoppable at his best is that... Um, he was sort of the lead leader of this team of super friends. Like <laughs> yeah. he was like Napoleon's marshals for a time were, were, were supremely gifted deputies. 
and he knew how to use them. He knew how, like where they all fit in the war machine. And then they start getting alienated. Some of them get tired and they start losing whatever they had. So they start to decline. But then there's also elements of um, some people just like who are close to him start to get the, the sense that like they can see the end coming. And they start like way before anyone else does. And they start positioning themselves oh. for how to not go down with this guy. Oh, God. Yeah. And so it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story because like it's doing all this. In the context of trying to be like, we're only interested in the military situation here. That's what we're focused on. But the author is too smart and too insightful to keep this at bay. And it turns into this really gripping personal drama. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I've, been, I've been really, uh, really interested in stories about decline lately. <laughs> Shocking! I know it's a, there's something about this here. It's very, uh, very, very interesting. Something in the air. Hmm. So, something in the air and the politics and the discourse and all of the things. Uh, but I have been really God. It's have there ever been any great, great military minds that that you know died happy like <laughs> that like got to be old men or old women? I, I know it's primarily men who we hear about in Western history for sure, but um, who like were great leaders, you know, shaped the world stage, and then, like, retired and transitioned into civilian life and, like, I don't know, had a stamp collection and were happy and died old. Like, does that exist? Does that... I mean, maybe Eisenhower? Okay. But, but okay. even there, though, but the thing is, like, the, this is the thing, though. Was Ike a great general? Was he this amazing military commander? Not really, like... What made Ike successful is that he was a profoundly decent and diplomatic leader. Sure. And that's what you needed in a coalition standpoint. But, like, if you're talking about, like, your truly great captains. Yeah. Uh, people who are, like, genuine, like, legit military geniuses. Oh. Ah, oh, boy, I don't think. Pretty much don't have happy endings, huh? Like, <laughs> those people do not have happy... No, like, I mean, because well, Wellington wins, uh, but but then he becomes sort of a unpopular reactionary political figure back in England. Like, yeah. you know, the, the wartime hero isn't beloved by his people, and the, the, the gifts he had on the field just don't translate to civilian leadership. Uh, so no, things don't work out for him. Like I'm sure there are examples, but sure, yeah. In general, these these stories do end with betrayal and and tragedy. Um, yeah. And I, and I think you know part of that's got to be or 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 they or they they end betrayal or tragedy, or they end up in places where maybe they have no business being. Right, like sure. you know, maybe Wellington should never have been in in British politics. Um, <laughs> and then there's the question of like who gets who do you say is like a great military commander? Like George Washington arguably does it, right? Like yes. I don't think there are many commanders who could have done what he did. Um, yeah. His gift was to lead an army and keep it in existence long enough for the French to come along and beat the British. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and it and that shouldn't be underplayed. Like it took brilliant leadership to accomplish that. Um, I think Ulysses S. Grant was a brilliant uh, commander and arguably a far better president than he's given credit for being. Mm. 
So I guess maybe maybe a few, but but in general, these people who live these titanic, like heroic military lives, usually the stories end pretty pretty gruesomely. It's yeah, I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, <laughs> I I I've been reading a very sobering book uh, that I would highly recommend to anyone who's interested in this. It's uh, unless you're, did you want to say more about? No 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 no. Go for it. Go. Okay. On. Um, it's called They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry, and it is basically uh, the story about the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, sort of in the face of what happened uh, to Michael Brown in Ferguson. Uh, so Wesley Lowry is a reporter, uh, I believe, for the Washington, uh, I think he's a reporter for the Washington Post. Let's check, shall we? <clears throat> uh, I yeah. Yep, okay, perfect, perfect. So he's sort of a national reporter. Um, oh, God, I just looked at his Wikipedia. He was born in 1990. He is he is younger than I am. That's impressive. Oh, man, what am I even doing? I know. I, I always <laughs> whenever I see somebody younger than me and they've made, like, such an incredible work, I'm like, well, good. <laughs> but no, it, this, is, this is really an incredible book. And he was on the scene. Uh, in Ferguson, you know, he was sent there sort of immediately after Michael Brown was shot and the protests began um, just on the ground. He, he's, a, he's a black dude, you know, uh, so who was there and he actually was arrested at one point um, as a reporter uh, for, you know, uh, I don't I think it was a complete bullshit thing that they sort of recognized was bullshit. They just wanted to get them out of the scene, sort of reporting on what the police were doing and shouldn't have been doing uh, in Ferguson, basically. And he he traveled the country pretty much during the period of three years, uh, you know, between the Michael Brown shooting and uh, now, basically. The book came out in, I think, November of last year. So the, the book was right up until basically then. Uh, you know, he went to several places. He went to, you know, uh, where Freddie Gray was murdered uh, in, in Baltimore. I'm trying to make sure I'm getting all the <clears throat> all the cities right, because it, it really does create a sense of of this in some ways blending together, you know, uh, cops shooting a black person and, you know, the local population obviously becoming incredibly understandably upset. There being protests. Uh, it, it goes through <clears throat> a lot of the sort of folks who are on the ground who are creating this movement, who, you know, sort of started on Twitter in a lot of ways, in certain ways, you know, started with a hashtag and then grew from there into organized protests, into newsletters, into, you know, small publications uh, of, of note and it's it's really god it's it's an amazing piece of journalism on one hand and it's also fucking gutting to read uh you know <laughs> just the the things even that wesley himself went through on reporting this on like you know obviously i it's it's disgusting i have to say obviously but the harassment he faced you know, by by cretins on Twitter, you know, telling him to go yeah. kill himself, Twitter, Facebook, on everything, you know, people finding out where his mom and dad uh, lived yeah. and harassing them. And like, you know, he's a reporter doing incredible work showing, you know, with video and with evidence and everything what's really going on. And in the most absolutely, you know, professional and, you know, pro professionally objective uh way like he he's just on the ground doing this reporting and people are are saying horrible things to him of course harassing him doxing him etc 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 it's 
it's gutting and I think necessary in a lot of ways to read and actually get a real feel for for sort of what it was like on the ground, what it was like to be around the families of the victims and uh, to be around sort of the folks who are who are making real change happen around does, that or trying to make real change happen around that. Well, and, and to that, does the book have a sense for where the story is headed next, right? Like, because yeah. I, I think one of the things that has been concerning <laughs> is that despite all the stories uh, and all the clear examples of uh, you know outright illegal shootings um, you know outright police cover-ups um, not not that like you know I think there was a video in Tennessee right where where the, where the police officer basically like is clearly planting a weapon uh, yeah. on, on the guy he shot uh, so you have, you have cases like that where that you know if you if you want to call that a cover up it's pretty half assed, uh, <laughs> but you know you have a lot of these cases where there's there's obviously iffy uh, <laughs> iffy uses of lethal force to say the yes. least. In many cases yeah. where it's outright like uh, disturbing, in addition to like police response to protesters and all that, and yet police are still really popular. Uh, with with public polling, right? Like, there's, it seems like there's not a ton of appetite for reforming them, and 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 so I guess, I guess I'm curious. Like, does the book have a sense of like where where this heads? What what does it mean? Like, does like is, is there a good outcome that things are headed towards, or is it just a work of bearing witness? It's very much a work of bearing witness. There, there is a sense of where do we go from here for sure. I am. I will also say this. I'm in the last chapter now, so I haven't finished the book. It mm. might end very much on a note of like, here's where to go from here. It's it's a very very sobering. Uh, it's a very sober, professional sort of clean cut book. You know, it's it's not. Um, you get some personal stories from Wesley for sure, or Lowry. I should just call him by his last name for for sure. Um, but it's very, very focused on sort of, here's what I saw. Here's what happened. Here's what these people said to me. It's very much a piece of journalism and not uh, any kind of, uh, terribly personal take. So I, I don't know if it's going to be, you know, fully on that level. I, I'm hoping it does give sort of some sense of, of where to go from here or what, you know, what looks like it's happening from here. That would be great. That would be instructive. I would, I would appreciate that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't know if, if Lowry has the answers. I think it's just, I think it's just something everybody should read. You know, I think it's yeah. just something everybody should know about. And, and God, I just, this is so the kind of book that I could put in anyone's hands and say like a hundred percent, like this you know, whatever your political leaning, whatever your view, this is not like a, a piece of like, you, you know, this is not like an MSNBC version of this accounting of events, right? There's 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 not a, a ton of, there's not really almost any editorializing at all in this. This is just, here's what happened. This is as close as you can get as a human being to like an objective reporting on this situation. So please fucking read it just understand what's going on or at least have some understanding of what's going on. Cause I don't think anybody fully understands what the hell, uh, you know, <laughs> what the hell is going on on every level here. Cause it's, it's such a mess, but, and I, I'm saying it's such a mess in terms of like what police are doing, not it's such a mess in terms of what activists are doing. It's, uh, it's just a really, really upsetting situation and, uh, worth knowing as much as we possibly can about it. I think. On that, on that really happy note, 
Um, hey, we we covered a lot of ground here in this week's uh, Idol Weekend. I think we uh, we went to some very interesting places, and I'm glad you were here for the journey. And I think with that, <laughs> it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends, uh, and enjoy enjoy and also gain enlightenment. Let's let's just say that for both and to cover all our bases this weekend. Uh, so this episode of Idol Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idol Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence. Please, please send us questions for our weekend correspondence <laughs> at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. You can ask us questions there, too. Yeah, you can always ask us questions. We, we, you know, we like good questions. We like uh, you know, good correspondence. Uh, and we also love it if you have a moment to go ahead and rate us on iTunes and to tell people in your life, you know, tell people that you know on Twitter. Tell people that you know at the supermarket. Tell your dog. Yeah, I don't know. Your dog might like listening to us. My dog likes listening to us. And, uh, you know, tell anybody that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend because both of those things help us out so, so much. And we really do appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs>